Welcome to Coffee with Cornelius. On this episode, we are talking about ancient history with Kyle Harper. We will discuss what ancient Romans thought about sex, whether modern day economics can be used to analyze ancient history and societies, why you should take a course in classics, perhaps in classical languages or history, and why Rome eventually fell as a civilization. It is a great honor for me to have Professor Harper on the program, especially since I cite him so much in my own research. Professor Harper is Professor of Classics and Letters and Senior Vice President and Provost at the University of Oklahoma. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma and his master's and PhD from Harvard. His Twitter profile describes him as a proud Okie. Professor Harper is an expert on ancient Rome. He has written extensively on slavery, sex, Christianity, the environment, and economics in the Roman Empire. It's very broad. It's very impressive. His latest book, which I have right here with me, is The Fate of Rome from Princeton University Press. Professor Harper, it is a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me, Cornelius. So my first question is this. It used to be the case at one point in time that Latin and sometimes Greek were requirements for university entry. In some countries, such as Germany, depending on the program you study, they still are. However, for most students, this is not the case. Why should those students who have the option consider taking a classics course, that is a course in language, history, mythology of ancient civilizations or antiquity? Well, the, the influence of the classics um, on later cultures is enormous. And part of it is that it was such a fundamental part of the curriculum for hundreds of years. And so um, it's almost impossible to escape the, the thought world and language and ideas uh, that, um, that the Romans and the Greeks were um, in some cases, the originators of. So um, it's important for understanding the the sort of human story. And um, I think that examples of Greece and Rome have proven endlessly fascinating. And every generation looks back at them differently and sees different things. And we're no different, but um, it it makes you part of something that's that's bigger and that's gone on for a long time. So I think it's a it's a great way to um, to explore. The, the human story, and um, I, I would encourage everybody to, to take a, a class in myth or, or ancient history, and uh, I think you'll come away with a, a deeper understanding of what it means to be human and a better place, a better sense of your own place in history because of it. Let's talk about your book, From Shame to Sin, which is about sexual morality in the late Roman Empire. So in pagan Roman culture, only women who had social status were afforded any claim to sexual honor while married men frequently cheated on their wives with prostitutes and young boys as young as 15 years old and sometimes younger. Christianity, you claim, changed that. How? So in the, the book From Shame to Sin, I uh, am arguing for a, a big paradigm shift in the, the logic of sexual morality from one in which um, it was utterly dominated by um, social imperatives and social status um, to one in which um, control of the body um, and a, a kind of um, divine orientation um, were were the the grounding logic of the sexual system. So uh, this this came out of previous work very much on Roman slavery, and uh, I sort of had uh, 
I'm not a hist historian of sex. I wrote one book about it. I will never do it again. I promise. <laughs> I live to tell about it. Um, uh, it was, it really is not um, representative of kind of the stream of things that I think on, but it, about, but it was sort of a, um, a spinoff of a lot of research that I'd done on the history of slavery. And one of the most striking facts about the, the Roman slave system is the, the extent to which it's really intertwined with um, the, the sexual economy of the Greek and Roman worlds. And um, it was entwined with the sexual economy, but also like the moral culture. So um, I, I had some things that um, I worked on and that I didn't get room for in my first book. So I decided to, to just kind of do a, a spinoff. But like I say, I live to tell about it um, and have, have said my piece and I'm uh, much more interested in economic and environmental history. Um, so I, I moved from, from sex to death um, and disease and how people die, which is uh, a little bit safer as a topic. Uh, just one clarifying question though. Let's suppose that you were a slave in the Roman Empire. Uh, during the time when the pagan morality of the Roman Empire dominated, if you were raped, uh, by somebody, let's say a man of status, would that be considered a crime against your person? Would you be considered somebody worthy of justice in that case? No. And in, in fact, in, in the Roman slave system, slaves are completely non-persons. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's no um, person there to be injured. You can um, injure the slave's owner. So if you um, say you have sex with either voluntarily or involuntarily, um, from the slave's perspective, um, the only person with a stake um, in in that is the the slave's owner. But um, if you're the the owner of a slave, then you have such complete um, domination or or property rights over the slave that it encompasses um, the use and abuse of their bodies. And so Christianity changes these notions of personhood and what types of person can be considered honorable under these uh, systems. You have written also that early Christianity changed ideas about slavery itself. This is apparent in early texts, such as Paul's letter to Philemon, but these texts stop short of outright abolitionism. What was Christianity's position on slaves, early Christianity, and did this position right. manifest in any material consequences for the slaves themselves? Right. Well, those are huge questions, and um, I think you've, you've already pointed towards what what is a really important pattern, which is that on the one hand, Christianity was different and mm -hmm. um, did emphasize the the ultimately the dignity of um, all human beings. And in fact, even though that's not language that um, comes from the, the very first centuries of Christianity, in the fourth century, there are church fathers who are using precisely that language, of course, in Greek, but are talking about the dignity um, even of slaves. Um, and uh, that is a remarkable, I think, watershed in, in the history of ideas that you have for the first time people saying slavery is inherently unjust, um, that it um, unjustly subjects one person to the, to the property ownership of another, but that's impossible because all um, human beings are creatures of God who inherently have the um, image and likeness of God, because they're moral, rational beings um, who are therefore worthy or, or dignified. Um, and that's, that language um, is, is almost um, verbatim used by church fathers um, as early as the fourth century. Unfortunately, 
Um, it, it isn't, um, we don't know how widespread those ideas were, and it doesn't seem to lead to uh, a kind of revolution. So abolitionism as a political movement is very distinctly a product of the 18th century and later, um, and there's nothing like it galvanized by the rise of Christianity. I do think that there are nonetheless significant, um, if somewhat marginal, modest, uh, improvements to the condition of slaves that are advocated by Christianity in ways that translate. So there, there are laws that um, allow manumission in the church. Um, of course, the Greeks and Romans have practiced manumission, so it's hardly a, a Christian invention. But it seems to have been um, something that the church supported and promoted. Um, and certainly the church um, um, tried to prevent people from the sexual abuse of slaves. Um, and even in, in some modest ways to limit the, the worst excesses of violence um, uh, used by masters against slaves. So I do think there were mm. some material efforts to, to change the, the slave system. But fundamentally, the legal rights of a, of a slave owner in their property um, were never materially infringed. And um, the slave system continued right on through the, the Middle Ages. Um, and you had very Christian societies as well as very Islamic societies in parts of the Roman Empire. Um, and unfortunately, it's a practice that's almost continuous um, at some low level, at least throughout the Middle Ages, um, right down to the opening of the Atlantic, when, of course, um, slavery explodes and becomes uh, mm. such a, a tragic and fundamental part of the early modern world. Right. And slavery was a big part of the ancient economy. So let's talk about ancient economics there are, roughly speaking, two schools of thought in how to approach ancient economics. And I think that this is a bit of a simplification, but nonetheless, one school of thought is characterized by Moses Finley, who argues that ancient economies were primitive and therefore we cannot use the tools of economics to analyze them. So we can't use things like supply and demand, transaction costs, game theory, oligopoly, and the like. We can't do that. It's better to understand it through the lens of social status and social relations. Contrast this with a scholar like Peter Temin, which is the second school of thought. His book, The Roman Market Economy, argues that the Roman economy very much functioned as a market and can be analyzed using contemporary economic tools. How should scholars of the ancient economy approach the subject. Right. Well, this divide between um, primitivists or modernists or what are sometimes um, called substantivists and formalists um, is kind of the perennial debate. And it never goes away. Nobody's ever going to decisively win. Uh, um, in that sense, you know, it's sort of like the Star Wars saga. Somehow, generation after generation, you can have the rebellion and you can have the empire and you just kind of have to rework the story a little bit. Um, and so it'll, it'll never die. It'll never get definitively resolved. And that's because um, there's, you know, each side um, makes some, some important contributions. And I think um, if, you, if you twist my arm, uh, I, will, I will come out on the side uh, that we can use the the tools of economic analysis to try and understand the Roman world, and that's that's all they are. They're tools. Um, they're ways to to model human behavior, to think about the way human beings make choices under constraints. And I tend to think that that has been um, highly constructive in helping us understand the the Roman economy, both um, in terms of its own 
um, nature and performance, but also comparatively. I don't know how you um, how you really do um, good historical economics without having a kind of comparative dimension, and I don't know how you do comparison if you're a radical um, kind of um, substantivist who uh, who doesn't um, think that we can learn from um, trying to measure and assess. Did the Roman economy grow? If it did, why did it grow? Um, I think those have been really productive questions to ask. And you know, at the same time, I think they actually help us see what the what the substantivists or people like Finley um, also wanted to help us see, um, which is that these were very different from modern capitalist market economies. And um, and the reality is that these were um, pre-industrial societies where the agricultural sector was completely dominant, where market exchange was more limited than it is in um, in contemporary times, and um, demography was fundamental, and the um, um, life was slow, technical progress was um, was limited. Um, so you don't have a world of rapid productivity gains, you don't have um, um, perfect markets that, um, that are often bringing um, you know, prices to the, to the level of equilibrium. Um, and, and the debate goes back and forth. I think um, um, you know, the new institutional economics helped bridge some of those divides. Um, it's hard to find people who are really radically on one side or the other um, these days, but it's still, useful in, in trying to define the object of study and to think about what was the Roman economy like. And I personally think that, um, that it was a uh, structurally a pre-modern economy dominated by limited technical progress. Um, and yet within those bounds um, was, was fairly um, successful in achieving per capita economic growth. So um, even for a pre-industrial economy, um, I think in context, it, it achieved um, a, a fairly unusual amount of both um, um, aggregate, but as well as uh, per capita growth. And that in itself is significant. And I think you, you miss that if you're unwilling to, um, to use tools that may come from a very different modern cultural context. You already allude to this, but the ancient economy had very slow technical growth, slow technical progress, slow economic growth, although there were periods of efflorescence. And in some sense, the ancient pre-industrial economies mechanics are easy to study. We can just view them through the lens of Malthusian dynamics. Now, for those of my listeners who have never encountered Malthus's views, would you please explain them? I mean, you can take a lecture, but how would you explain them just succinctly? Sure. I mean, so Malthus is a late 18th, early 19th century English thinker um, who is important for conceptualizing the relationship between population and resource, fundamental um, carrying capacity or resource dynamics. So um, put simply, basically intuits the diminishing returns um, to, the, to the products of of land and labor. And so as the population grows, um, which Malthus uh, argues can increase exponentially, um, then um, agricultural productivity cannot keep pace, even if it grows, um, can't keep pace. So this leads to a 
um, decline in average well-being or what we might call real per capita income uh, that ultimately then um, is has feedback into the, the population or demographic system itself. Um, he described two big mechanisms, one by which um, declining income causes people to have decreased fertility. So say if people get poor, they may not be able to get married or have as many kids. Um, or the more unpleasant one, what he called the positive check, um, which is the declining um, incomes lead to, to increased mortality, whether that's through famine or plague or violence, um, but that ultimately the, the amount of death will go up um, because people um, are more and more miserable or impoverished. So um, this is a, you know, it's an idea that's developed in 18th century England, but it's proven influential for thinking about long-run pre-industrial economic history because there, there certainly are relationships between population movements and real wages. Um, and in, in a certain sense, at least, um, the, the Malthusian model helps us think about um, economic performance in pre-industrial times. If you read a book like Gregory Clark's A Farewell to Alms, you can visually see the effects of this Malthusian dynamics play out. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, there's more or less a flat line of per-person income across the world as we measure from various ways. However, the Roman Empire was able to transcend Malthusian dynamics and experience a period of efflorescence, that is economic prosperity. How was it able to do that? Right, so, so I think the Malthusian model, um, it's not a, an either or. It, it mm -hmm. leads you to um, look for relationships between um, per capita agricultural output and the, the level of population or population movements. Um, and I actually think that's still there, but I think that um, it doesn't allow for um, intensive growth. And um, I think that historically intensive growth was important even in the pre-industrial period and that it had two basic causes. One is trade, um, which you can call Smithian growth after Adam Smith that allows um, specialization, um, and we know that this happened in the Roman Empire. There was a huge amount of trade and a certain amount of specialization, and um, so this caused um, um, economic growth. Uh, and then what you can think of as technical or Schumpeterian growth, which is um, intensive growth, increase in productivity that's due to technology. Um, and even in the Roman Empire, we don't necessarily think of the Romans as um, amazing uh, inventors. And I think that's probably still basically accurate. You know, the Romans don't invent something like gunpowder or the, um, the printing press or um, you know, any of the things that are like really transformational technologies. Um, the Romans are good at concrete, arches, they build pretty big ships. Um, you know, there's, they're good civil engineers, um, but um, most, of their, most of their breakthroughs aren't radical. I think we can appreciate some of the machines, um, some of the milling devices um, that they develop, some of the um, large-scale um, quasi-industrial production of ceramics. Um, it, you know, the, you have to give them some credit, but I still think on balance, um, there's no major technological breakthrough, but 
but you have some uh, advances and then you have a lot of technical diffusion. So you have a lot of capital built up in the Roman empire. You have good property rights, um, very good financial um, institutions for, a, for an ancient society um, that allow people to invest and take advantage of what technologies there are. So even though you don't see a ton of, of um, intellectual breakthroughs in, in new kinds of machinery or, or production devices or ways to harness energy, um, you do see a lot more stuff and there's a, there's a lot more machines. Um, they're just not um, as radically as radically different um, as they might have been by the 16th, 17th century when you start to get more transformational technical advance. So in, in the big picture, if you sum up the kind of Smithian and Schumpeterian growth that gains from trade and from technical innovation and diffusion, there is real growth in the Roman Empire. And um, I think that it is ultimately allows them to achieve both um, population increase, um, not only without seeing um, the, the level of the real wage per capita go down, but it was still increasing. Um, that doesn't mean that there weren't other factors at play that were diminishing the returns to, to land. Um, and in the long run, I don't actually think that the, um, the Roman Empire was on the brink of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and I think that they couldn't have gone on for another century um, without seeing um, uh, some limits to the to the kind of growth that they were dependent on. But um, I've done a, some work on real wages in the Roman Empire and looked very carefully where we have good documents, which is from Roman Egypt, which is, you know, it's a province. This is not the, the metropole of the empire that's benefiting from taking other people's stuff, um, which the Romans certainly did. Um, this is this is the place who is getting their stuff taken. Um, this is this is a province that's subject to fairly heavy extraction. Um, and when you look at the real wages of unskilled laborers um, over the very long term in the Roman Empire, there's there's a definite um, trend towards growth, and um, it's not enormous, but at a, over a century, century and a half arc, when we know the population is growing. Um, you also see the real wage increasing for unskilled laborers. So I think that's uh, a compelling sign of per capita growth in the Roman How Empire. does uh, climate play into this? Well, this is, yeah, this is one of the really interesting frontiers, I think, in, in economic history is that um, we're increasingly able to say uh, what the climate was doing. There's still a lot of uncertainty. We could hedge that in forever with, with caution. But... Um, we know increasingly what the climate was doing, at least at some scale and resolution. And the climate is really important in, a, in an agricultural economy. So the agrarian sector is far and away the, the dominant sector of production, and it's highly sensitive to climate variability. So um, agricultural output will be extremely influenced by precipitation and temperature. And we know this, this is crystal clear from periods where we have still pre-industrial, um, but still but have much better data. So we can look at like the, the 16th and 17th century in Italy, where we know that the, the climate was a major driver in agricultural output. And um, as we go back, we have less evidence and it gets trickier, but, um, but I do think that the Romans 
in the late Republic and the early empire benefited from uh, a climate period that at least in core parts of the empire, like Italy, um, would have been favorable to, to strong output in the agricultural sector. Um, Egypt's climate is very distinct from the Mediterranean climate because it's dependent on the Nile River. Um, but I think even there, the Romans seem to have got fairly lucky because as best we can reconstruct, and I think there's more work to be done on this, but even the Nile flood that is the, the basis of agriculture in the Nile Valley um, seems extremely stable um, during this kind of period of efflorescence. So there is a turn in ancient history towards reliance on natural archives. You mentioned some of these environmental data from tree rings and pollen samples, genetic data from corpses, archaeological information from mass burial sites, and so on. This, necessitate, this necessitates excuse me, cross-disciplinary and interdisciplinary work. What challenges does this pose for the historian? Yeah, they're huge ones. I mean, I think high risk, high reward. Um, it's hard because if you're an ancient historian, you probably spent conservatively 10 years of your life holding yourself up in a, in a room or a library somewhere learning Latin and Greek. Um, just like if you're an economist, you spend uh, a lot of time mastering statistics and programming and, yeah. um, and, you know, there's there's value in that, the deep disciplinary knowledge. But then what's really exciting is when you can combine those deep disciplinary skill sets and knowledge bases um, to to ask new questions and to, to find different answers. Um, it's very hard. So, you know, dendrochronology is very hard. Um, and I have a ton of respect for people who have the, the expertise to understand and the kind of really masterful level of, of control that it takes to really understand and read a tree. Um, I cannot read a tree. I don't have the, um, any of the tools. Um, and yet somebody who's just looking at a um, tree ring series, they may have a, a, a very good ability to, to reconstruct a, a temperature record or a precipitation record. Um, but you know they can't just go to Wikipedia and and download you know what was happening um, in that century. Um, you have to find ways to combine those, and so I think it's it's team science. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes the academic discipline of history can be a little um, conservative on some of these approaches. Um, can be daunted either conceptually or methodologically. We. We're trained to work solo. Um, so historians, most historians are used to single author publishing and don't understand that um, that if there's six names on the author line, that it doesn't mean you did, you know, a sixth of the amount of work you would have done. Um, it just, it's a totally different kind of creation of knowledge. Um, and, you know, sometimes historians are very concerned about um, determinism, which is like this big boogie man that doesn't really mean anything. Um, that um, you know, if you're talking about the climate or you're talking about disease, um, and you all you want to do is introduce that as a as a factor and try and um, define and measure its its impact as a causal factor, um, that isn't any more deterministic than excluding that variable and pretending like um, they don't exist. But sometimes um, when you try to bring in natural factors, it it sort of uh, gets people's um, 
you know, anxiety up. Um, so I think there are challenges, both conceptually and then practically. We're just, um, you know, it's easier to go to your own disciplinary conference and um, work with the people you've always worked with. And I don't think that's any fun. Um, and I think everything that's, that's fun and exciting right now, at least for me, um, is working with microbiologists who are, who are working mm. on genetics or um, working with economists who are capable of, of bringing econometrics to a question and, um, and the rigor that that provides. That's fun. That's, that's intellectually exciting um, to me. Um, and I'll, I'll just give you one example. There's a, um, an ancient inscription. It's a Greek inscription. Um, and there's been a controversy for a century about where it's from. Um, and it's on marble. And um, I looked up a colleague, I'd never met him before, but at my university who works on the geochemistry of marble um, and said, hey, do you think we could um, analyze this, this marble inscription? And <laughs> you will not believe this, but geologists love rocks and they want to talk to you about rocks um, of course, they, yeah. love, they love <laughs> yeah. rocks like i love romans um and so he got really excited about it i got really excited about it and um we put together a, a great team and we're able to get a physical sample of this artifact which is wonderful and kind of a stroke of luck it's, it's called the nazareth inscription it's at the bibliothèque nationale in paris and uh we did isotope geochemistry on the the sample and got some really interesting results um and so to me, I think that's so much more fun because as my own training, I can read the text, I can translate the Greek, I can talk about the Roman administration and the kind of legal um, artifact that this is. And all of that couldn't answer the, this question. For a century, everybody who's, who's looked at it has that training and it had gone as far as it could go. You bring in a geologist and you're able to do something totally different. Let's talk a little bit about a subject that's pretty salient now, and that is pestilence. And in particular, you study pestilence and plague in the ancient world, diseases, infectious diseases. You have a Journal of Economic History article about movements and factor prices in Egypt surrounding ancient plagues, Justinian, Antonine, and so on. Currently, we are also facing a pandemic in the form of a novel coronavirus. And I want to be careful here because I'm not asking you to predict the future or to necessarily do anything of that nature. But I just want to understand how can historical analysis, even if it's a humanistic analysis of ancient plagues, inform our understanding of present day pandemics, if at all? So I've been working on infectious disease since I wrote my last book, and I'm working on really nothing but infectious diseases now. And I actually think this is one of the one of the interesting frontiers of opportunity for economic history because for the most part, um, economic historians have treated disease as a as an exogenous factor. Mm -hmm. um, like you can you can try and model system dynamics um, of fertility, mortality, the relation to um, wages, technology, human capital. But then mortality just will suddenly change for exogenous reasons. Um, diseases happen, they evolve, they emerge. And if you look at history, um, the problem is that um, it, it's all exogenous changes in mortality. Um, uh. That's got to be one of the most powerful variables in human history. So I don't think we should be satisfied just totally leaving it outside the, the system that we think is capable 
um, of, of modeling and understanding, um, I think it's important to try and say where, where do new diseases come from and what are the tools we need to try and understand that. I think those are ecological. So I think um, there's a lot of exciting opportunity to look at human history, bringing economics and ecology together because what ultimately um, explains the, the emergence of new diseases is um, evolution and evolution happens um, when other organisms, viruses, bacteria, um, protozoa have um, different opportunities to spread their genes because ecologies change um, and there's a random element to it, but there's also a, a structured um, context to it. And so as humans have transformed the environment, um, it's caused the emergence of new diseases. Um, and that's a historical pattern. I think we see that in the Roman Empire where globalization, urbanization, um, connectivity, density, um, promote the transmission, promote the emergence and the transmission of new infectious diseases. So the, the COVID pandemic that we're living through, I do think is part of a pattern um, and um, we can see it in a deeper perspective as um, a, one of many respiratory viruses that have emerged because of the, ironically, because of the success of our species. They're you know, we're the only uh, primate where there's seven and a half billion of us walking around, and that strongly incentivizes the kind of respiratory viruses that we have to adapt to us. And um, SARS coronavirus 2 is just the latest in a long line of diseases that have taken advantage of that. Um, at the same time, I think it's hard to, to make historical comparisons with the social response to a pandemic and the, the economic dynamics of a mortality shock like this, because um, our world is very different. We have different tools and mechanisms like science, public health. Um, we're eventually gonna have a vaccine. Um, and still it, it helps us think about the Roman past, I think more deeply because um, they didn't have any of that. And, um, and we do, and we're still extremely disrupted by this, mm -hmm. by this disease. Yeah. Now, in The Fate of Rome, your book, you discuss the impacts of disease and climate change on Roman economic growth. Now, you are careful to note that these interacted with trade and state capacity to enable Rome's economic success. So for those studying the Roman state and Roman state capacity, what are some key questions to investigate along these lines of this interaction with the climate, with the state formation? I'm sorry, could you reframe that? I, yeah, yeah, sure. So if you're studying the Roman state, if you're a scholar of Roman state history, what are some key questions to investigate in terms of the interaction of the state development of Rome with the environmental conditions? Yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big question because, um, you know, when we, when we talk about the, the fall of the Roman Empire, um, mm -hmm. there are probably as many different um, definitions of that as there are historians of it. Um, and um, so I think it's important to have some clarity in definition. And when I talk about the, the fall of the Roman Empire, I think it's just shorthand for a long process of state failure and mm -hmm. stagnation. So um, um, demographic and economic stagnation that um, operate um, in, in a system that also involves um, the, the 
imperial state. And, um, and so I think the, the imperial state has its own metabolism. I think you have to try and really understand the way that Roman imperialism worked. What are the, what are the dynamics of it? They change over time. Um, and Rome is born as a conquest state, but then it becomes something really different. Um, it becomes very much a territorial state um, that's trying to defend a really vast territory with a frontier um, through a fairly massive army that's, um, that's fed and paid um, through a, a system of taxation um, in a really vast space with fairly limited um, communications. And um, you have different sources of, of power within that imperial apparatus, the, the emperor himself, but also the Senate, the army, the administration. Um, and so I think we can see that as a, as a kind of system, but to imagine that that system um, is, is sort of isolated from the demographic system and the economic system and ultimately the environmental system is, is a mistake. Um, mm -hmm. And um, as, as you've helped show um, that there are, there are inherent um, um, sources of fragility or there are structural tensions um, within the, the state system as there are in any imperial system. And I do think that like comparative sociology of, of imperialism can, can help us understand yeah. the Roman state. Um, but, um, but those tensions um, were, were part of, uh, were connected to the demographic system and the economic system and the environmental system. So we know that, um, that these kinds of shocks um, that, could be introduced by um, changes in the natural environment, whether it's climate shocks um, or I think particularly acute um, are mortality shocks, um, can reverberate through these various systems on different time scales and can exacerbate the tensions that are already there, can create new ones. Um, and I think we see this play out over the course of Roman history. So take for instance, the crisis of the third century. You can explain that in terms of um, purely um, political dynamics, but um, I think that's a very limited part of the story, or at least um, I kind of it's blind to the reality that this occurs at the same time as climate crises, um, um, health crises, and that good history is trying to to take proper measure of all of these variables. What advice would you provide to those who are interested in studying ancient history and would potentially like to work in the field? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, would, I would encourage anyone going into it to try and be interdisciplinary. And I know that I was, um, you know, very, very lucky to have mentors that were encouraging and supportive of uh, of interdisciplinary work, even where, you know, sometimes it didn't always work. Um, and you have to be willing to, to take risks and um, to, to make mistakes, to sound silly, to ask goofy questions. Um, I ask questions all the time that I know um, are not expertly worded or, or sound silly, but, um, you know, that's okay. Everybody does that. Um, and, I, you know, I have a couple of great teachers along the way. Um, Christopher Jones and Mike McCormick were always very encouraging. And, um, you know, I was very lucky when I got to my graduate program that um, Professor McCormick had, um, 
had just received a, a Mellon grant that gave him really wide scope to set up some very experimental, this is almost 20 years ago, um, um, working groups on things like paleoclimatology or paleogenomics. Um, and there were others too, and some didn't, some didn't go very far, but um, what's, what's cool are the ones that do. Um, and it takes, it takes encouragement and support um, from others to be interdisciplinary and a willingness to, um, to ask silly questions or inexpert questions and um, develop friends. I think it's, it's, Ultimately, it's very human, and I, I would encourage any graduate students um, who are studying ancient history and want to do economics, go find a way to sit in on an economic seminar. Make a friend who's in a PhD program, or vice versa. If you're an economist and you want to know some ancient history, I promise you uh, a, a Roman historian is going to think it's cool to have you sitting in a, a graduate seminar um, and asking questions and learning what what we're talking about um, and then make a friend who studies Roman history. And so when you want to write that paper, you've got somebody you can, you can co-author with. Yeah. And I can attest to that. I found that in my own work, ancient historians have been very welcoming to me as an outsider uh, to the field. So I appreciate that. Now, final question, uh, Professor Harper, where can we find you? Do you have a Twitter? Do you have a blog? At Oklahoma Harper. Um, just that's my, my handle is Oklahoma Harper. Um, I do have a blog. I blog about once a year, um, so I don't want to um, raise expectations. I think it's kyleharper.net, um, but um, I'm going to have a New Year resolution sometime to be a better blogger, but uh, um, I throw up data sets or something that just needs a, a, a little home, um, but, but I tweet, tweet a little more than that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor Harper. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, take care. Pleasure's mine. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye.